KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com. San Diego City Council has a new member. A lot of the biggest issues within District 6 are no different than what we're facing as a region. I'm Jade Hindman with M.G. Perez. Maureen Cavanaugh is off this week. This is KPBS Midday Edition. California regulators consider new rules that change how the state subsidizes solar power. If the question is, is it less generous than what there is? Yes. Is the amount of generosity we have currently reasonable? No. And a look at what Democrats need to do to get support from California's most Latino county and the ethics of immersive art. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, a blend of computer science, statistics, and domain expertise. Learn more about University of California San Diego's online Master of Data Science program at omds.ucsd.edu. San Diego City Council members were sworn in this week, bringing a new face to the council. Kent Lee will assume the mantle of leadership for the city's 6th district, which includes Mira Mesa, Kearney Mesa, most of University City, Sorrento Valley, and portions of Scripps Ranch. The Mira Mesa resident with extensive nonprofit experience joins the council at a time where housing and homelessness remain some of the critical issues facing the city. He joins us now. Council member Lee, congratulations on your election and welcome to Midday Edition. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So I just mentioned housing and homelessness as issues facing the city. What do you see as the biggest issue specifically facing District 6 going into your term? You know, we've we've had a chance to talk about this over the last uh, two years with a lot of um, our residents door to door. And um, I think what you'll find is that a lot of the, the biggest issues within District 6 are no different than what we're facing as a region. Um, I think without a question at the moment, uh, you know, a lot of residents are concerned about the, uh, you know, increasing homelessness that we see across our region. Um, but really also how that ties into the, the simple fact that housing uh, is simply unaffordable right now in San Diego. Um, costs have gone up for everything, but nothing has been more markedly, um, uh, you know, concerning, I think, for a lot of residents uh, than the cost of housing, uh, and especially for those who are renting or looking to live and stay in San Diego. Um, that is uh, continually seeming to be a challenge, uh, given that that rising cost. I think some of the other challenges that we're facing are similar, again, across the region. Um, you know, we, we are growing communities and uh, we know that we need to really consider how we deliver infrastructure. Um, a lot of our streets are in, uh, you know, dire need of repair. Um, and that also goes the same to say for a lot of city facilities, whether it's parks or libraries. Um, and a lot of our aging communities within District 6, um, that is a focus is in trying to figure out how we d- deliver the infrastructure, the transit uh, that's needed to make our communities livable. You're a first-generation Asian-American in the city's most populated AAPI district. What does it mean to you to be a voice for the community, particularly as San Diego becomes more diverse? 
Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm really honored to be able to represent this district. Um, and certainly there's uh, no doubt that that with it being about 41% uh, Asian American Pacific Islander, that that is sort of a significant component of the district. Uh, but I'm also here to represent the entire community. Um, and I think wh where those really come together is that there are a lot of priorities that end up overlapping. And, you know, I think this is as much about providing a voice for those who may not often have that voice, uh, especially at City Hall and ensuring that we have an opportunity to shine a light on issues and um, causes that may not always um, be heard. Um, you know, I, I, it's not lost on me that there have been very few Asian American Pacific Islander, uh, you know, council members that have served in our city. Um, you know, I had the honor of being sworn in by um, former council member Tom Hom, who actually uh, first served in 1963. And uh, really to follow that, we've only seen our mayor, Todd Gloria, and um, our last council member, Chris Cade. Um, and I, so I think this is an opportunity to really think about how we um, highlight and uplift those voices, um, but how we ultimately serve the community as a whole and ensuring that we actually deliver on the promises that we make. And as we mentioned, you have a lot of nonprofit experience under your belt. How do you feel this uh, will help you during your time on the council? Sure. I, you know, I've always been a believer that um, this is really about service um, to our community and to our residents. Um, and I think my experience um, uh, within the nonprofit community uh, has really resembled one of service. Um, and I think that's what our focus is on. You know, I, I think a lot of people think of nonprofit organizations just in terms of delivering good uh, to a community. But um, behind the scenes, really, it's it's in many ways just like running a business, um, except there are some really significant challenges. I mean, we often have uh, really broad missions that we want to deliver in terms of serving the community but very limited resources in which we have to do that within. Um, and I think that's really no different than, than the city of San Diego, um, perhaps at a very um, larger scale, uh, in that we really want to ensure that we actually um, deliver the maximum amount of impact that we have for our residents um, with the very limited and finite resources that we have available. And I think understanding how we are going to deliver on those priorities, uh, ensuring that we meet those who have the greatest needs, um, and that we end up serving all of our residents as a whole, um, that balance is something that I think is is very similar to those of us who have had an opportunity to serve, um, you know, throughout throughout the nonprofit community. And that's that kind of experience that I would hope to continue to bring and that voice that I would hope to lend to our city council. And let's circle back to housing now. You're a homeowner yeah. at a time where, you know, that goal seems out of reach for so many San Diegans. What do you think needs to be done to improve the city's housing crisis? Yeah, you know, my, my wife and I look at the home that we're in, and uh, we recognize that e even if you bought a home in just the last couple of years, um, you know, I've heard from many residents, um, and then ourselves included, where we feel like we couldn't afford the house that we're in today. Um, and, and if that's the case, I mean, what's it like for, you know, those who have been renting in San Diego, um, trying to save up, and now between the cost of housing and the rising interest rates, uh, to see that sort of um, fall out of line. And I think what that reminds us is that it's it's not just saying that we need more housing, um, but really specifically driving down to how do we deliver the housing that's needed for San Diegans as a whole. And a lot of that comes down to middle-income housing. I mean, when we look at folks who are making the median income within our region, and we think of the cost of housing, uh, you know, and, and the median uh, cost of a home that's available, that disparity is really significant. And I think that disparity and that ratio in different, uh, that the difference in that ratio is really what makes San Diego now the most expensive place to live in the country. And so if we really want to deliver on actually having housing that's more affordable, uh, what's going to be key is thinking about how we deliver on middle income housing uh, that's going to match the needs of working families throughout the city. 
And again, as we mentioned, homelessness is a key issue facing the region. Any thoughts on what can be done there? Yeah, you know, I've been heartened to see a lot more collaboration coming, especially with the city and the county and other agencies um, as region. Um, But it's also, uh, you know, frustrating to see that that's only beginning to really take shape. Um, And we know the crisis is at an all-time high. And and what I am really most hopeful for is looking at how we can bring together all of the resources, all the strategies that we have, and really work together as a region to solve the issue. Because, uh, you know, it it doesn't just um, shift from one, uh, you know, municipality to another. Um, It's important that we're all working together to address the challenges that we're facing. And I know we're we're not necessarily going to solve all of it overnight, but we certainly, you know, have pockets of homelessness that we uh, really should be focused on and, and be able to deliver on. Uh, you know, I think a lot about um, the fact that we have a lot of families with young children who are facing homelessness, um, folks who are, are seniors, um, those who have served, uh, you know, in our military and others, that, you know, we should be finding ways to deliver resources that would actually address the challenges. Um, and I think there's, without a doubt, a lot of work to do. I've been speaking with San Diego's newest city council member for District 6, Kent Lee, Councilmember Lee, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. The uncertainty clouding California's solar marketplace could be settled this week as regulators consider a proposal that changes the rules for electricity generated by rooftop solar. KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson says the California Public Utilities Commission is considering a plan that slashes the solar subsidy. When KPBS talked to Ricardo Castillo a year ago, he was just as excited about showing off his garden as his solar system. A city Heights, City Heights courtyard cottage. Come on, Max, come on. Got my tangerines, got my avocados going here. His rooftop solar panels and a new efficient heating and cooling unit have slashed his utility bills. But new solar customers are facing a different reality if regulators approve proposed changes to California's solar rules. We think rooftop solar is very important. Our concern was how you fund it. Matt Baker is the director of the Public Advocates Office at the California Public Utilities Commission. He says the proposed net energy metering rules, NEM is the shorthand, don't include investor-owned utility calls for mandatory steep grid connection fees. But the plan does slash the value of electricity produced on rooftops, And that means it'll take longer to recover the thousands of dollars homeowners spent to install the solar panels. California's eye-watering rates are, you know, the other part of the equation that deals with payback. And if you live in San Diego, you know, you have the highest rates in California. You, I believe, have second, first, third, you know, depending on the, you know, measurement, highest rates in the country. And 10 to 20 percent of that high rate is just the NEM subsidy to existing customers. The Public Advocate Office's rate specialist says existing solar owners get a rate benefit that can earn them up to six times the value of their initial investment. Mike Campbell says that's too much and the proposed rules are much more sustainable. If the question is, is it less generous than what there is? Yes, is the amount of generosity we have currently reasonable? No. A move to steeper peak electricity rates between 4 and 9 p.m. is designed to create an incentive to install batteries. That would give residents the ability to store electricity during the day and use it during peak pricing hours. 
Campbell and Baker say they would rather see solar subsidies that give credits for installation like the federal government does. But they're stuck with paying for those subsidies inside already high electricity rates. The proposed changes don't sit well with solar backers. Advocates have worked hard for over a year to keep existing incentives so the state can double the number of solar households to 3 million by 2030. Karina Gonzalez of Hammond Climate Solutions says advocates are optimistic the California Public Utilities Commission can still make changes. We've managed to build a statewide and local coalition of cities, elected officials, nonprofits, churches, schools, um, climate justice organizations, and we've been able to successfully advocate for changes in previous proposals. The new plan doesn't include a $600 million equity fund that was in last year's rejected proposal. That was a subsidy designed to bring solar to low-income households and communities of color. Community advocate Eddie Price rejects utility-backed arguments that the current solar subsidy falls unfairly on the bills of residents without solar. Price says solar takes power out of the hands of the few and puts it into the hands of many. In order to address equity, you have to intentionally address inequity. And rooftop solar is a way to do that. You, you allow us to participate in our own um, life here, right, as well as helping the planet and helping the grid. But they're trying to take all that away. The California Air Resources Board says the state needs to quadruple the amount of solar-generated electricity by 2045 to help hit the state's carbon neutrality goals. The state's move to cut the solar subsidy by 75 percent is widely expected to slow solar installations. Wally Arita works for a solar installation company in San Diego, and he says that'll hurt an industry that employs more than 68,000 workers. This is very inconsistent with what they're trying to do, because by putting in this new mandate, they're basically trying to cut the number of residential solar installs, and that is not good for the industry at all. It's not good for the industry, it's not good for the homeowners. Regulators will discuss the second proposal to revise net energy metering on Thursday. They can adopt, reject, or tweak the measure, or a commissioner could introduce a different option. Any action requires a majority vote from the five-member panel. And KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson joins us now. Eric, welcome. Thank you. So how could the state's effort to cut solar subsidies impact the state's carbon neutrality goals? I'll go ahead and state the obvious here and say it seems like these two objectives are working against each other. That's a good question. And yes, it does seem like those two objectives are working each other. If you make solar less affordable, that means less solar gets put on rooftops and that makes it harder for California to hit its uh, goals to be carbon neutral by 2045. Um, That's one of the things that I think that regulators are grappling with. Um, That's uh, still a point of contention until they decide to go that route. The solar industry employs a lot of people. How might these proposed changes impact jobs? You can look historically here in California when uh, the change was made from the original net metering law to net metering 2.0. That happened about seven years ago. There was a decline right after that happened. uh, And it took about four years for the solar industry to crawl back up to the same level of installations they had under the first uh, iteration of net energy metering. And you can probably expect something similar to that 
to happen this time, that if these new rules are adopted, the benefits are not as robust as the ones that are currently in existence, uh, there will be an impact on the 68,000 people who work in the solar industry. Wow. And tell me more about how equity is being considered in all this. I mean, are communities of color and low-income communities getting what they need to even participate in solar programs? I think that regulators kind of acknowledge that, uh, but not in a direct way. There are a lot of different issues at play here. But one thing that these new solar rules will do uh, with a less robust uh, subsidy will make solar basically a little bit more expensive. And California really doesn't have a great initiative to bring lower and middle income uh, residents into that solar family. So by cutting the subsidy for solar, it makes it more difficult for people with less money to pencil out the math and and see that that you know is a sensible thing for them. Uh, and the state you know has some initiatives for community based solar in an, as an effort to get renters into the into the solar family, but nothing that's really targeting right now low income or middle income residents. So who really benefits from cutting the solar subsidy? That's a difficult question. And, and the reason it's difficult, I, I'm not sure benefits is the is the right word there. So um, the solar subsidy, just to remind you, was something that was put into place to encourage people to give a financial incentive for people to install solar panels. Um, you might remember Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger a number of years ago set California up with this NEM subsidy to reach a million solar rooftops in the state of California to cash in on the state's uh, abundant supply of sunshine. And uh, we hit that and passed that. And uh, now it's kind of in this difficult territory where utilities are saying, you know, this is starting to undercut um, our business model a little bit uh, by making the electricity rates more expensive because the solar subsidies are figured into the electricity rates like many other things are that have nothing to do with buying electricity. And uh, they're saying that if a solar customer can avoid buying electricity, they're not paying these extra costs to maintain the grid. And so it gets very complicated and it gets very convoluted. But I think that the way California's electricity rates are structured uh, creates some of the problems that the folks who are trying to encourage uh, adoption of solar are tying themselves up in knots with. Mike Campbell from the Public Advocates Office, who you spoke to, says the NEM subsidy to customers is unsustainable, but also says he'd rather see the solar subsidy used for the installation of batteries so customers could store their own energy and save costs that way. How would that be sustainable, but not the existing net energy metering rules? There is a lot going on in the state. They want basically what what regulators, I think, are trying to address is this period where solar power generation ramps down, uh, you know, when the sun goes down and gas-fired generation kind of ramps up uh, and becomes the peak, uh, you know, around five or six o'clock in the evening in California. And what they're trying to do as a way to incentivize the installation of batteries is to make that peak pricing period more expensive. And then if you have a solar installation on your roof, 
paired with a battery, you can store solar during the day when there's an abundance of energy in California, put it in the battery, and then draw power from the battery during these peak storage times so you can avoid these higher cost rates. And you would save money that way and over a period of time pay back the cost to install the battery. They're also considering some subsidies. Uh, It's kind of the same problem that they have with the current solar system is that they're putting the subsidy in the rates. And those people who can afford to avoid these higher electricity costs can do that. And people who can't afford to pay for these higher electric costs don't really have a good option uh, to get out from under these these increasingly uh, steep electricity rates. I've been speaking with KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson. Eric, thanks for breaking that down for us. My pleasure. We're going to stay on the topic of solar energy with this next story. To fight climate change and meet renewable energy goals, the Biden administration has championed the opening up of federally owned desert lands in California to develop massive renewable energy projects like industrial scale solar. The California Report host Saul Gonzalez visited solar sites under construction in San Bernardino and Riverside counties to learn about the green energy boom. He speaks to environmentalists who are concerned about such projects impact on sensitive desert habitat as tens of thousands of acres are recarpeted in solar energy panels. On a swath of desert land about an hour's drive east of Palm Springs, I'm watching as construction workers drive row after row of big metal posts into the desert floor, posts that will soon be topped by thousands of solar panels. Yeah, we are listening to pile driving, which is basically the first step in the erector set of solar. That's Raisa Lee, a project developer for San Francisco-based Clearway Energy, which is building this solar power project on federal land called Victory Pass. Lee tells me when construction is finished and this facility is connected to California's energy grid, it will generate enough power for more than 130,000 homes. And another number you should know relates to just how big this project is. Uh, the project site itself is about 3,000 acres. I think until your boot's on the ground, it's hard to to digest that scale. But let me try. At 3,000 acres, this one solar power facility will be about three times the size of San Francisco's Golden Gate Park. And it's just a single example of an accelerating green energy boom in the deserts of California. It's a boom encouraged by the Biden administration, which has streamlined renewable energy development within nearly 11 million acres of federal desert land in seven California counties, with many of those projects being industrial-scale solar built by companies like Clearway. Why do you have to be here? Well, the desert is where the sun is. That's John Woody, a vice president at Clearway, which is constructing solar projects on public and private lands. We're headed to zone five. You'll be able to see the solar panels uh, and what looks like a fairly completed solar project. I met Woody at the company's Daggett project in San Bernardino County. When it opens late next year, the energy plant will be the largest solar power and battery storage facility in the state. And buyers for power are already lined up. We have customers that that are buying power from this project all across the state of California, from Northern California to Southern California. But beyond profiting Clearway, Woody says these huge desert solar power projects are necessary if California is going to meet its goals of ending its dependence on fossil fuels and fighting climate change. You know, 
California needs to add about six gigawatts a year of these renewable energy and storage projects to meet their clean energy goals 90% by 2035 and 100% by 2045. And so we're just doing all small, our small part to help California meet those goals. But as solar projects in the desert multiply and grow, so too do criticisms. Well, I've just always found the desert to be a place of inspiration and renewal. And it's worth something more than just replacing with endless square miles of photovoltaic cells. That's Chris Clark, who's with the National Parks Conservation Program and the co-host of a podcast series about threats to the desert. Like other environmentalists, Clark worries about desert solar's impact on the habitat of endangered and threatened desert plant and animal life, like the desert tortoise, as thousands of acres of desert land are turned into solar power farms. The threat to the desert right now is similar to the threats that other places in North America faced in the 19th century, where people were starting to notice what was there and starting to figure out how they could how they could profit off it. Clark argues that as California goes all in on solar, the project should be built on rooftops in coastal cities and suburbs, where most of the power generated will end up anyway, and not hundreds of miles away in the state's deserts. There are ways to do this without bulldozing old growth desert with millennia-old plants and uh, endemic populations of rare organisms and endangered and threatened species. Clearway's John Woody argues extraordinary efforts are being taken by private companies and the government to protect the desert's ecosystems as solar facilities are built. He also says California's green power goals are so enormous, it's impossible to make an either-or choice between urban rooftop solar versus desert solar. It, there's really no silver bullet. You can't do one or the other. You, you need to sort of do all of the above. It's not a silver bullet. It's silver buckshot. Meanwhile, more desert land continues to be prepped for the installation of solar panels, joining solar power facilities that have already been built. Back at Clearway's Victory Pass solar site, project manager John Moon points to the distant desert landscape and all the other solar projects in the area. So you have... Desert Sunlight, Desert Harvest, Maverick 1 and 4 on this side, and then Athos 1 and 2 over here. And then we're building all right here. And everything you said is a separate solar power facility. Yes, sir. And as ground is broken on more projects, the debate will continue over how to balance the goals of creating a renewable energy revolution and protecting the state's desert lands. That story from the California Report host, Saul Gonzalez. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. I'm M.G. Perez with Jade Hindman. Maureen is off today. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. Imperial County often sits in the shadow of San Diego County at the southern border with Mexico. That leaves room for mystery and misconceptions for a county whose population is 85% Latino 
and lately leaning right to the Republican Party. Jean Guerrero is an opinion columnist with the Los Angeles Times, and she has discovered other interesting facts about Imperial County, which she writes about this week in a column headlined, If Democrats Want Support from California's Most Latino County, They'll Have to Earn It. She joins us now to talk about it. Jean, welcome to Midday. Great to be here. Your column begins with a first line that is rather poetic. It says, for Democrats who mistake demographics for destiny, Imperial County is a mystery. What is so mysterious about the county's political makeup? So this is what drew me to the county in the first place, um, just knowing that Imperial County is the most heavily Latino county in the state of California. More than 85% of its residents are Latino. Um, But at the same time, you saw the largest shift in support for Trump um, in this county out out of all the counties in the state between 2016 and 2020. I had done some reporting out of the county back when I was uh, working at KBBS. I, I was in Calexico when Trump visited in 2019 and, and declared that the country was full and, and did a photo op at the at the border wall there. Um, so I wanted to understand, you know, w- what what was going on here. I mean, what happened between 2016 and 2020 that made vote made residents more inclined towards Trumpism between 2016 and 2020. And I suspected that part of it was the fact that Trump had been president present there and that Republicans had made efforts that Democrats had not made in the county. So you describe what you're talking about, the voting patterns, as a paradox. How so? Well, so they it's it's despite the fact that they're trending Republican or inching towards the Republicans in state and federal races, for example, in the midterms last month, we saw that the GOP is continuing to make inroads here. Um with races such as the governor, the attorney general, you saw a decline in support, even though they they still um, voted majority Democrat, the the GOP is definitely making inroads in those races. But at the same time, you see a trend towards progressive candidates at the local level. For example, you saw Michael Lillen II, um, who's an 18-year-old openly gay Latino, he won a city council seat in Calipatria in Imperial County. Um, you saw Raul Ureña, who's 25 and identifies as transgender. Um, they were reelected to Calexico's city council uh, with strong support al- alongside their ally, Gilberto Manzanares, who's 29 and also a progressive. So what I see is in both of these trends, one towards progressive candidates at a local level and one towards the GOP in state and federal races, there's this through line of of wanting change. Um, people are rejecting the status quo, and I think that's what both of these seemingly opposite trends have in common. So I'm not sure if this is irony or a paradox, but Imperial County has the lowest turnout of registered voters in the state. Why aren't more people voting? So it's decades of disenfranchisement and dismal outreach on the part of the Democrats, who are the party who would naturally appeal to many of the residents here because of because of what the Democratic Party offers in terms of their approach to immigration, their ap- approach to social services. Um, but Democrats have failed to do important outreach here. Um, the other thing is officials have failed to provide important election materials and other government documents in Spanish, which is the language that's spoken by um, more than 75% of residents in Imperial County. 
So a lot of the decisions that are being made politically, um, residents just feel disconnected from from them. They feel disconnected from politics. Most of the people who I interviewed when I was in Imperial County said that they don't vote um, because they, they 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 don't see a point. They they don't believe that politicians exist to serve them, and I think that is a product of the fact that uh, this population feels neglected and has been neglected for for many decades. And also separately, the fact that a large percentage of this population are not citizens and don't even have the ability to vote. Uh, Many of them are permanent residents. They have have green cards and many others are, are undocumented. And so there is the fact that we haven't seen immigration reform or a pathway to citizenship since 1986. And so many of the county residents just don't even have a, 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 the ability to vote. You mentioned that Trump made that appearance uh, in 2019 and said, we're all full. How was that uh, taken in the community? And has have those opinions changed since then? Well, so it depends on what part of the the community you're in. In Calexico, which is the city closest to the border, people have very anti-Trump views there and were appalled um, when Trump visited and said those things. And, you know, in fact, there were protests against him. And Raul Ureña, the city council member um, in Calexico, they led a encampment of farm workers uh on the border to protest this idea of immigrants as criminals, uh, immigrants as rapists that Trump had had tried to popularize throughout his administration. And residents in Calexico took a very proactive approach to trying to dispel these anti-immigrant myths that Trump was advocating throughout his presidency and were largely repelled and, and repulsed by by him. But then if you go further north to El, Cent- El Centro and, and other northern parts of the county there, there, you will find a lot of people who that message resonated with and who do have concerns about immigration. Um, and, and one of those reasons, I think, is just the fact that there are so few pathways to the middle class um, in Imperial County aside from joining the Border Patrol. And the Border Patrol um, ha- is, is a very politicized agency, especially in recent years. They um, endorsed Trump. They have um, a very right-wing culture as an employer. And there have been studies that show that um, that, that joining the Border Patrol can, can, can sort of shape your, your like, like joining any law enforcement agency, it can push people further to the right in their politics. And so I spoke to residents who that was true for, you know, they had joined the Border Patrol. And so they they believed in this like tough on the border um, politics that Trump represented. So given all that you discovered, what does 2024 look like? That really depends on what the Democrats do, how they change their messaging, one of the main things that um, residents brought up to me in terms of their feelings of neglect is is the lack of educational opportunities in the Imperial County. The fact that those who do want to pursue a higher education often are forced to to commute to San Diego State University in San, in San Diego. Raul Ureña had to go to UC Santa Cruz to pursue their degree, and so. The, the Democrats need to invest in education in the county, and they need to start a more reciprocal relationship with residents here. 
a lot of the residents feel that the county gives and gives and gives to to the cities of California, to the state of California, to the rest of the nation in terms of crops, in terms of renewable energy, which in recent years has become more and more a, a, a dominating um, part of the economy in the county. And they're not really getting enough back. Um, and, and so I think that for that feeling to change, the Democrats need to actually spend time with the residents and ask, well, what, what can we do to change that dynamic? How, how can we get back in a, in a way that would make this community better? I've been speaking with Jean Guerrero, opinion columnist at the Los Angeles Times. Jean, thank you. Thank you so much. We are one year into a program Governor Gavin Newsom says will transform early childhood education. By 2025, all four-year-old children in California will have a free spot in a new grade called Transitional Kindergarten, better known as TK. But KPBS investigative reporter Claire Tregesser says schools are not prepared. The morning drop-off isn't easy for many elementary schoolers and their parents. But it was downright brutal in September for Sarah LaPietra and her four-year-old son, Teddy. He would, like, lay down on the ground the second he got inside the gate. Teddy attends McKinley Elementary, a San Diego unified school near Balboa Park. LaPietra says she was supposed to stop at the gate and tell her son to walk by himself to class. It didn't go well. And I felt like I couldn't go in and like do anything, but also he wasn't going to class. And so I'd just be like watching him like lay on the ground in front of and stuff. And so I just like, I just felt it was awful. Now the school has changed the rules so parents can walk their kids to class. But Teddy is still struggling to adjust to many other parts of being in elementary school. He's just been having behavioral issues that we never saw when he was in preschool, like hitting um, kids and teachers and things like that. He was running out of the classroom the first week or two, um, which obviously is a big um, safety risk and is concerning for us and for their his teachers. Teddy is one of many younger four-year-olds who are now attending TK. Governor Newsom and other state leaders say it'll better prepare students for kindergarten. But many parents and experts say the schools aren't ready for them. Where you might walk into a TK classroom and you might see 75% of the time is devoted to instruction on math and literacy, and that's a red flag. Sasha Longstreth is the chair of San Diego State University's Child and Family Development Department. Maybe they, they're they a little too heavy on the elementary side and they need to introduce some more developmentally appropriate practice from preschool. State guidelines on how TK will be taught haven't been fully implemented. That means some classrooms are not structured with the right balance of instructional and free playtime. Longstress says this is a recipe for behavioral problems. At this age, children do need to have experiential learning. They need to have a lot of movement. A San Diego Unified spokesperson said the needs of four-year-olds are being met. In a statement, he said students' schedules include purposeful play, recess, and physical movement. The district schools generally have 15 minutes of outdoor recess and another 20 minutes after lunch. 
parents say that's not enough. And they say the problems with TK don't end with the school day. La Pietra's son is having even more issues at his school's aftercare program. They're very quick to be like, you need to come get him. We can't handle this. You need to come get him. He's doing this. You need to come get him. Even even like it was raining and they were like, you need to come get him because we don't really have anything to keep him entertained. It is situations like this that give some parents pause. You ready? You ready? Sarah Alamani is another San Diego Unified parent. Her daughter, Valentina, would be eligible for TK in 2024, but she's not going. I just don't think the facilities are built for four-year-olds. They're not really supposed to be just sitting in a classroom all day. They're not developmentally ready for that. She says the schools don't have bathrooms or playground equipment right for four-year-olds. And they don't have a place for them to nap. Claire Tregesser, KPBS News. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. I'm M.G. Perez with Jade Hindman. Maureen is off today. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. Where do you go to enjoy and appreciate art? A museum? A gallery? That's what people have been doing forever. But recently, more immersive exhibitions have become popular, where art and technology meet to create an experience. The latest of these to come to San Diego features the art of the elusive British street artist Banksy. Seth Coombs wrote about it in the San Diego Union-Tribune, and he joins us now. Seth, welcome to Midday. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. What is an immersive art experience? Well, the, the name sort of says it all. They're these immersive experiences that, that generally use uh, technological aspects such as virtual reality, holograms, digital projections to sort of immerse the viewer in the, the, you know, the work of the artist in question. So we know these exhibits are popular. Are they profitable? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, there's something like five or six different Van Gogh immersive experiences at this point. But one of them, the big one, the immersive Van Gogh experience, uh, grossed $250 million last year and sold something like 4.5 million tickets. So let's talk about Banksy land. Who is Banksy? Uh, well, Banksy is a, as you mentioned, a British street artist. Uh, he is anonymous. Nobody is exactly, I mean, people have, you know, ideas of who he, he might be. I use the, the pronoun he because that's, that's, there is a, a general presumption that, uh, that he is a male. That being said, he has, you know, done graffiti all over uh, Britain and, and even the U.S. And uh, I believe he's in the Ukraine right now. Uh, doing street art there so uh but he's become sort of like this you know folk hero in the art he's he's you know plays pranks a lot he you know there's the famous incident where uh you know he had some of his work auctioned and it got shredded uh, on site and so he's he's become sort of this uh you know anti-authoritarian anti-capitalistic sort of uh like i said folk hero in the in the art world 
So we assume Banksy is alive and well somewhere in the world, but the organizers of this event admit it's unauthorized. How do they get away with this? Well, they don't fully sort of come out and admit that. You have to sort of search around the the exhibition's website to find out that it isn't actually authorized by the artist. How they get away with it? I mean, that's the question I went into the piece trying to sort of understand. And, you know, without getting super bogged down in the the legalities of it, there's there's, you know, copyright, there's trademark, there's fair use, there's all these different things. I talked to an expert at NYU who, who specializes in, in visual art law, Amy Adler, and, and she mentioned to me that he might have, you know, a legitimate trademark case uh, against these people. So what what may, what compels them to do it anyway? Well, I think he has been involved in multiple uh, lawsuits in the European Union that have pr- tried to you know, prevent people from doing these types of exhibitions, he's lost a lot of those. So I think that, you know, if I was to speculate, a lot of people who, who do these types of exhibitions think, well, this is going to be really, the burden's going to be on him to prove that we've uh, infringed on his uh, trademark. So people who have experienced this and who have attended, does it bother them? They, they might not be looking at the actual work of the artist? I don't think it bothers anyone you know, when they go see a Van Gogh immersive experience, that they're not seeing an actual Van Gogh artwork. They're seeing, you know, holographic and, and virtual reality, you know, representations of that art. When it comes to this particular exhibition, there's not that aspect, really. There's, you know, like I said, sort of sculptural renderings of his work that aren't done by him. There are photos of his work that he's done. I wrote this for the, the, the minority of people who might not know what they're seeing. And, and for those who do know what they're seeing, I don't think it bothers them. I think they just might want to go and, and celebrate an artist that they like. So does an exhibit like this cheapen the art or does it just make it more accessible to many more people? I think it can be both. I think that for a lot of people, you know, this might be one of two art experiences they have during the year. And I think that they want to go and, and see, you know, a uh, uh, an artist that's, you know, a bit of a rock star in the in the art world, which there are there are very few. But like, you know, like a Van Gogh, like a Frida Kahlo, like a Banksy. And those people aren't going to be able to to go out and see this artist's work all in one place. So. No, it's it's not real. It's not the real art, but it is a way to sort of, you know, immerse yourself in the, in that artist and see all their work, albeit in a very sort of uh, virtual way. Um, and then, as far as you know, whether it it cheapens the art, I don't know. I I I think that uh, people would be less you know less likely to go and actually see uh, the actual art if given the option to sort of experience all at once. So I, yeah, I I have a hard time answering that. We've been speaking with Seth Coombs, contributor to the San Diego Union Tribune, covering the city's visual arts and literary scene. Seth, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, 
Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.